0: A note to the hearer, those who give careful reading to studies in the scriptures will discover the studies differ in several respects from many other religious periodicals. There is little in this publication that will appeal to the popular reader. If this magazine be read as a newspaper is read, little profit to the soul will be obtained what we solicit from our subscribers is this. First, that before taking up any article herein, the reader will lift up his or her heart to God and earnestly ask Him for a spirit of discernment to recognize His truth and an open heart to receive it. Second, that to this end, the reader will study each article with an open bible before him turning to each passage quoted to see whether or not the writer proves what he says by a thus saith the lord and a third that he reads slowly critically and thoughtfully what is presented in these pages god has said in his word he that believeth shall not make haste isaiah 28:16 And if ever there was a time when his children needed to give special heed to this admonition, it is now. The children of God are infected with the spirit of the world. The mad rush which characterizes everything around us, the awful hustle and bustle of the ungodly as they rush headlong to eternal death, has affected the members of the household of faith and few if any of us are free from it. One of our most urgent needs is to be delivered from this feverish spirit, for it is rapidly sapping the spiritual vitality of many of God's people. The irreverent speed at which the holy scriptures are read in the average pulpit, the rate at which sacred songs are commonly sung. The unholy manner in which many rush into the presence of the Most High God and gabble off the first words that come to their lips are so many examples of this infection. And alas, the same Spirit possesses most of us when we read the Word of God and expositions of that Word. We earnestly ask our readers to make a prayerful study of the words stand, sit, wait, tarry, as they are found in Holy Writ. The title of this magazine implies that it is designed not for lazy people or for those who are so busily occupied with the things of this world that they have no time, in reality no heart, for the things of God. No, it is published for the benefit of those who are or who wish to become students of Scripture. The articles herein call for study, thoughtful perusal, prolonged meditation. Finally, let not this magazine become a substitute for your own daily study of God's Word. Rather, let it be an incentive for further search on your part to discover the priceless treasures hidden therein. This is from The Life of Arthur W. Pink by I. H. Murray, pages 23 and 24. Turning now to September 1932, Studies in the Scriptures. Search the Scriptures, John 5:39. Editor Arthur W. Pink, 1886 to 1952. These seven studies in the contents are The Impeccability of Christ The Epistle to the Hebrews The Life of David The One Thing Needful Giving Place to the Devil Assurance and Food Assured Study number one The Impeccability of Christ. We are living in a world of sin, and the fearful havoc it has wrought is evident on every side. How refreshing, then, to fix our gaze upon one who is immaculately holy and who passed through this scene unspoilt by its evils. Such was the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate. For thirty-three years he was in immediate contact with sin, yet he was never to the slightest degree contaminated. He touched the leper, yet was not defiled, even ceremonially. Just as the rays of the sun shine upon a stagnant pool without being sullied thereby so christ was unaffected by the iniquity which surrounded him he did no sin first peter 2:22 in him is no sin first john 3:5 and contrast chapter 1 verse 8 he knew no sin second corinthians 5:21 He was without sin, Hebrews 4.15. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, Hebrews 7.26. But not only was Christ sinless, He was impeccable, that is, incapable of sinning. No attempt to set forth the doctrine of His wondrous and fearless person would be complete without considering this blessed perfection. Sad indeed is it to behold the widespread ignorance thereon today, and sadder still to hear and read this precious truth denied. The last Adam differed from the first Adam in his impeccability, Christ was not only able to overcome temptation, but he was unable to be overcome by it. Necessarily so, for he was the Almighty. Revelation one eight. True, Christ was man, but he was the God-man, and as such, absolute Master and Lord of all things. Being Master of all things as His dominion over the winds and waves, diseases and death, clearly demonstrated it was impossible that anything should master Him. The immutability of Christ proves His impeccability or incapability of sinning. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever, Hebrews 13.8 Because he was not susceptible to any change, it was impossible for the incarnate Son of God to sin. Herein we behold again his uniqueness. Sinless angels fell. Sinless Adam fell. They were but creatures. And creaturehood and mutability are Really, correlative terms. But was not the manhood of Christ created? Yes, but it was never placed on probation. It never had a separate existence. From the very first moment of its conception in the Virgin's womb, the humanity of Christ was taken into union with His deity and therefore could not sin. The omnipotence of Christ proves his impeccability. That the Lord Jesus, even during the days of his humiliation, was possessed of omnipotence is clear from many passages of Scripture. What things soever he the Father doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For as the Father raiseth up the dead, and quickeneth, even so the Son quickeneth whom He will. John 5, 19 and 21 When we say that Christ possessed omnipotence during His earthly sojourn, we do not mean that He was so endowed by the Holy Spirit, but that He was essentially, inherently, personally omnipotent. Now, to speak of an omnipotent person yielding to sin is a contradiction in terms. All temptation to sin must proceed from a created being, and hence it is a finite power. But impossible is it for a finite power to overcome omnipotency. The constitution of Christ's person proves his impeccability. In him were united in a manner altogether incomprehensible to created intelligence the divine and the human natures. Now God cannot be tempted with evil. James 1:13. It is impossible for God to lie. Hebrews 6:18. And Christ was God manifest in the flesh, 1 Timothy 3.16, Emmanuel, God with us, Matthew 1.23, personality centered not in His humanity. Christ was a divine person who had been made in the likeness of men, Philippians 2.7. Utterly impossible was it, then, for the God-man to sin, to affirm the contrary, is to be guilty of the most awful blasphemy. It is irreverent speculation to discuss what the human nature of Christ might have done if it had been alone. It never was alone. It never had a separate existence. From the first moment of its being it was united to a divine person. It is objected to the truth of Christ's impeccability that it is inconsistent with his temptability. A person who cannot sin, it is argued, cannot be tempted to sin. As well might one reason that because an army cannot be defeated, it cannot be attacked. William Shedd said, temptability depends upon the constitutional susceptibility, while impeccability depends upon the will. So far as his natural susceptibility, both physical and mental, was concerned, Jesus Christ was open to all forms of human temptation, excepting those that spring out of lust or corruption of nature. But his peccability, or the possibility of being overcome by these temptations, would depend upon the amount of voluntary resistance which he was able to bring to bear against them. Those temptations were very strong, but if the self determination of his holy will was stronger than they, then they could not induce him to sin, and he would be impeccable, and yet plainly he would be temptable. Unquote. Probably. There were many reasons why God ordained that His incarnate Son should be tempted by men, by the devil, by circumstances. One of these was to demonstrate His impeccability. Throw a lighted match into a barrel of gunpowder and there will be an explosion. Throw it into a barrel of water and the match will be quenched. This, in a very crude way, may be taken to illustrate the difference between Satan's tempting us and his tempting of the God-man. In us there is that which is susceptible to his fiery darts. But the Holy One could say, The Prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. John 14.30 The Lord Jesus was exposed to a far more severe testing and trying than the first Adam was in order to make manifest His mighty power of resistance. We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, without sin hebrews 4:15 this text teaches that the temptations of christ were without sin in their source and nature and not merely as the passage is sometimes explained that they were without sin in their result the meaning is not that our Lord was tempted in every respect exactly as fallen man is, by inward lust as well as by other temptations, only he did not outwardly yield to any temptation, but that he was tempted in every way that man is, excepting by that class of temptations that are sinful, because originating in evil and forbidden desire. To quote again from William Shedd, The fact that Christ was almighty and victorious in His resistance does not unfit Him to be an example for imitation to a weak and sorely tempted believer. Because our Lord overcame His temptations, it does not follow that his conflict and success was an easy one for him. His victory cost him tears and blood. His visage was so marred more than any man. Isaiah 52.14 There was the travail of his soul. Isaiah 53.11 In the struggle he cried, O oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me Matthew twenty six thirty nine Because an army is victorious, it by no means follows that the victory was a cheap one. Unquote. One other objection may perhaps be noted. Though we hesitate to defile these pages by even transcribing the filthy exaltations of the carnal mind. If the humanity of Christ was, because of its union to His divine person, incapable of sinning, then, in view of its being divinely sustained, how could it hunger and thirst? suffer and die. And seeing it did, then why was it incapable of yielding to temptation? It is sufficient answer to this impious question to point out that while the Mediator was commissioned to die, John 10.18, he was not commissioned to sin. The human nature of Christ was permitted to function freely and normally. Hence, it wearied and wept. But to sin is not a normal act of human nature. To the Redeemer of His people, Christ must be mighty to save, traveling in the greatness of His strength. Isaiah 63.1 He must have power to overcome all temptation when it assails his person, in order that he may be able to secure them that are tempted. Hebrews 2.18 Here, then, is one of the solid planks in that platform on which the faith of the Christian rests. Because the Lord Jesus is almighty, having absolute power over sin, the feeble and sorely tried saint may turn to him in implicit confidence, seeking his efficacious aid. Only he who triumphs over sin, both in life and in death, can save me from my sins. Arthur Pink Study number two The Epistle to the Hebrews the faith of Abel Hebrews 11:4 The 11th chapter of Hebrews has three divisions The first which comprises verses 1 to 3 is introductory setting forth the excellency of faith the second which is covered by verses 4 to 7 outlines the life of faith. The third, which begins at verse 8 and runs to the end of the chapter, fills in that outline and, as well, describes the achievements of faith. The first division we went over in our last article. There we saw the excellency of faith proven by four facts. Faith gives a reality and substantiality unto those things which the Word of God warrants us to hope for. Verse 1, Faith furnishes proof to the heart of those spiritual things which cannot be discovered by our natural senses. Verse 1, Faith secured to the Old Testament saints a good report. Verse 2, faith enables its favoured possessor to understand that which is incomprehensible to mere reason, imparting a knowledge to which philosophers and scientists are strangers. Verse 3, thus the tremendous importance and inestimable value of faith is at once apparent. The second division of our chapter may be outlined thus. First, the beginning of the life of faith, verse 4. Second, the character of the life of faith, showing of what it consists, verse 5. Third, a warning and an encouragement is given, verse 6. Fourth, the end of the life of faith, or the goal to which it conducts. Verse 7 That which the Holy Spirit now sets before us is far more than a list of Old Testament worthies or a miniature picture gallery of the saints of bygone days. To those whom God grants a receptive heart and anointed eye, There is here deep and important doctrinal instruction as well as most blessed practical teaching. The contents of Hebrews 11 concern our eternal peace and it behooves us to give them our most prayerful and diligent attention. May it please the Spirit of Truth To act as our guide as we seek to pass from verse to verse. By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. Verse 4. Rightly understood, this verse describes the beginning of the life of faith. Let us seek to weigh attentively each separate expression in it. First, it was by faith that Abel offered unto God his sacrifice. He is the first man according to the sacred record, who ever did so. He had no established precedent to follow, no example to emulate, no outward encouragement to stimulate. Thus his conduct was not suggested by popular custom nor was his action regulated by common sense. Neither carnal reason nor personal inclinations Would have moved Abel to present a bleeding lamb for God's acceptance. How, then, is his strange procedure to be accounted for? Our text answers, It was by faith he acted, and not by fancy or by feelings. But what is signified by this expression? Ah, the mere words, by faith are far more familiar unto many than their real import is understood. Vague and visionary indeed are the conceptions which multitudes now entertain their own. We must not then take anything for granted, but rather proceed slowly and seek to make quite sure of our ground. The one scripture which Perhaps more than any other, unlocks for us the meaning of the by faith, which is found so frequently in Hebrews 11, is Romans 10.17. There we read, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Faith must have a foundation to rest upon, and that foundation, must be the word of him that cannot lie. God speaks, and the heart receives and acts upon what he says. True, there are two kinds of hearing, just as there are two kinds of faith. There is an outward hearing, and there is an inward hearing. The one merely informs, the other influences the one simply instructs the mind, the other molds the heart and moves the will. So, there is a twofold meaning to the term the Word of God. See our remarks on chapter 11, verse 3, namely, the Word as written and the Word as operative, when God speaks in living power to the soul. Hence, there is a twofold faith, the one which is merely an intellectual assenting to what God has revealed, and that which is a vital and supernatural principle of action, which worketh by love. Galatians 5.6 Now we need hardly say that it is the second of these which is in view here in Hebrews 11.4 and throughout the chapter. But let us move carefully, step by step. It was by faith that Abel offered unto God his acceptable sacrifice. And as Romans 10.17 declares, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. It therefore follows that God had definitely revealed His will that Abel believed that revelation, and that he acted accordingly. Now, in Old Testament times, God spake to men sometimes directly, sometimes through others. In this instance, we believe the reference is to what God had said to Adam and Eve, and which they had communicated to Cain and Abel. By turning back to Genesis 3, we discover what the Lord said to their parents. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam, He said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Genesis 3, 16-19. But further, unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. Verse 21. Here, the Lord spoke to Adam and Eve by action. Four things were clearly intimated. First, that in order for a sinner to stand before the thrice-holy God, he needed a covering. Second, that that which was of human manufacture, chapter 3, verse 7, was worthless. Third, that God Himself, must provide the requisite covering. 4. That the necessary covering could only be obtained by death, by bloodshedding. In Genesis 3.15 and 21, we have the first gospel sermon which was ever preached on this earth, and that by the Lord Himself. Life must come out of death. Cain and Abel, and the whole human race sinned in Adam, Romans five twelve, eighteen 18, and 19, and the wages of sin is death, penal death. Either I must be paid those wages and suffer that death, or another, an innocent one on whom death has no claim, must be paid those wages in my stead. And in order to my receiving the benefit of that substitute's compassion, there must be a link of contact between me and him. Faith it is which unites to Christ. Saving faith, then, in its simplest form, is the placing of a substitute between my guilty self and a sin-hating God. Now, what we have just gone over was made known, probably through Adam, to Cain and Abel. How do we know this? Because, as we have seen, Abel brought his offering to God by faith. And Romans 10.17 makes it clear that faith presupposes a divine revelation. Further confirmation of this is found in Genesis 4 7, when Cain's countenance fell at the rejection of his offering. The Lord said unto him, If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. Thus, a divine institution of sacrifice, clearly defined and made known, is here plainly implied. It was as though God had said to Cain, Did I promise to accept any other offering than which conformed to my prescription? By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Three things here claim our attention. The spring of Abel's action, faith, the nature of his offering, wherein it was more excellent than Cain's. The first of these we have already considered, the second we will now examine. The language of our present verse refers us back to Genesis 4, there we read, and Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. Verse 4. His action here brought is in sharp contrast from his parents in Genesis 3.8 who hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. The contrast is most significant. A consciousness of guilt caused Adam and Eve to flee, a sense of need moved Abel to seek the Lord. The difference between them is to be attributed unto the respective workings of conscience and faith. An uneasy conscience never of itself leads to Christ. And they which heard, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, and Jesus was left alone. John 8, 9 And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. Genesis 4, 4 The separate mention of the fat tells us that the lamb had been slain, by killing the lamb and offering it to God Abel acknowledged at least five things First he owned that God was righteous in driving fallen man out of Eden Genesis 3:24 Second he owned that he was a guilty sinner and that death was his just due Third he owned that God was holy and must punish sin. Fourth, he owned that God was merciful and willing to accept the death of an innocent substitute in his place. Fifth, he owned that he looked for acceptance with God in Christ the Lamb. Therefore did he by faith place the blood of the firstlings of his flock type of him who is the firstborn or head of every creature, Colossians 1.15, between his sins and the avenging justice of God. Here, then, is where the life of faith begins. There must first be a bowing unto the righteous verdict of the Divine Judge that I am a sinner, a transgressor, of his holy law, and therefore justly under its curse or death sentence. No excuses have I to offer, no merits have I to plead, no mitigation of the sentence can I fairly ask for. My best performances are only filthy rags in the sight of him who knows that they were wrought out of self-love and to promote self-interests, rather than for His glory. I can but plead guilty, and hide my face for very shame. But as the gospel of His grace is applied to my stricken conscience by the power of the Spirit, hope revives, as He makes known to me the amazing fact that the Lamb of God died so that all who bow to God's verdict own themselves as lost and hate themselves for their sins might live. And then faith stretches forth a trembling hand and lays hold of the Redeemer, and the criminal is pardoned and accepted by God. Having pondered the character of Abel's sacrifice, let us now consider wherein it was more excellent than Cain's. In Genesis 4 3, we read Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. Cain was no infidel, for he owned the existence of God, nor was he a religious, for he came before him as a worshiper, but he refused to conform to the divine appointment by carefully noting the nature of his offering we may observe four things first it was a bloodless one and without shedding of blood is no remission hebrews 9:22 second it was merely the fruit of his toils the product of his labors third he deliberately Ignored the sentence of God in Genesis 3.17, Cursed is the ground. Fourth, he despised the grace made known in Genesis 3.21. Thus in Cain we behold the first hypocrite. He refused to comply with the revealed will of God, yet cloaked his rebellion by coming before him as a worshiper. He would not obey the divine appointment, yet brought an offering to the Lord. He believed not that his case was so desperate that death was his due and could only be escaped by another suffering it in his stead. Yet he sought to approach unto the Lord and patronize him. This is the way of Cain spoken of by Jude. Verse 11. It is the way of self-will, of unbelief, of disobedience, and of religious hypocrisy. What a contrast from Abel! Thus we see how there was a striking foreshadowment from the beginning of human history that the church on earth is a mixed assembly made up of wheat and tares. Cain and Abel stand before us, King of human history that the church on earth is a mixed assembly made up of wheat and tares. Cain and Abel stand before us as two representative men. They head the two and the only two classes which are to be found in the religious world. They typified, respectively, the two sections of Christendom. Cain the elder who is mentioned first in Genesis 4 and therefore represents the prominent section sets forth that vast company who honor God with their lips but whose hearts are far from him. Who think to pay God a compliment but who refuse to meet his requirements. Who pose as worshippers but live to please themselves. Abel on the other hand Hated by Cain, foreshadowed that little flock, the members of which are brought to feel their sinnerhood, bow to God's will, comply with his commandments, fly to Christ for refuge, and are accepted by God. Most solemnly, too, did Cain and Abel furnish us with a striking example of the sovereignty of divine grace? Both of them were shapen in iniquity and conceived in sin, for both were the fallen sons of fallen parents, and both of them were born outside of Eden. Yet one was of that wicked one, John 3.12, while the other was one of God's elect. Marvelously and most blessedly, may we here behold the fact that sovereign grace is no respecter of persons, but passes by to human ideas the most likely and pitches upon the unlikely. Being the younger of the two, Abel was inferior in dignity. God himself said to Cain, Thou shalt rule over him. Genesis 4.7 But spiritual blessings do not follow the order of external privileges. Shem is Preferred before Japheth, Genesis 5:32, 10:2, and 21, Isaac before Ishmael, Jacob before Esau. By a divinely given and divinely wrought faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. The superiority of Abel's worship may perhaps be set forth thus. First, it was offered in obedience to God's revealed will. This lies at the very foundation of all actions which are acceptable unto God. Nothing can be pleasing unto Him except that which He has stipulated. Everything else is will-worship. Colossians 2.23 Second. It was offered by faith. This tells us that there was something more than the mere performance of an outward duty. Only that is approved of God which proceeds from the living principle of faith, kindled in the heart by the Holy Spirit. True obedience and faith are never apart. Therefore we read of the obedience of faith, Romans 1.5. Yet, though inseparable, they are distinguishable in thought. Faith respects the word of promise. Obedience, the word of command. For promises and precepts go hand in hand. We act in obedience when the commandment is uppermost in our minds and hearts, which puts us to the performing of duties. We act in faith when the promises look to and their reward is counted upon. Third, Abel had a willing mind. Second Corinthians 8.12 Faith works by love. Galatians 5, six. This is seen in the fact that he brought of his best. It was of the firstlings of his flock, which God afterwards took as his portion. Exodus 13.12